Colossians 3, we're finally moving on here. And this is actually the biggest chunk of Colossians I've taken at one time because it all flows together. There's really no place to cut this off and to, to divide it up. It's really one message he's delivering here in this part of the book. And so we are coming to, I believe, one of the greatest passages of one of the greatest books of the Bible. We have seen Paul argue in this book against Gnosticism, right? We've seen him argue against angel worship. We've seen him argue against asceticism. We've seen him argue against legalism. Um, Really, all of chapter 2 was the don'ts of worship, right? Chapter 2 could be like, here's how not to worship. Don't do this. It's not in law-keeping that we please God. It's not in asceticism. It's not in the outward, right? It's not in punishing ourselves. It's not in the hyper-spiritualism. It's not in angel worship. It's not in worshiping other things. Um, It's not found in Gnosticism, right? The idea, really, Gnosticism is just antinomianism, just the idea that you can do whatever you want and live however you want because your flesh is evil anyway, so it doesn't really matter. No, it does matter, okay? Um, When Christ redeemed us, he didn't just redeem our spirits. He redeemed our bodies, okay? In other words, he's laid claim to your body and to my body. So we're to conduct them in righteousness. Uh, We are bought with a price. We're not our own. We don't own ourselves, okay? And one day when Christ comes back, he's going to resurrect our bodies, and he's going to glorify them like his own body. So he's laid claim to our bodies. So this idea that live however you want, because it doesn't affect your spirit, right? You see those people, I love God. I just like to indulge in the flesh you see they won't say it that way you know those people i know those people they want to indulge the flesh but say they love god well no 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 what we do on the outside is a reflection of how we feel on the inside okay you can't escape that so chapter two it took several weeks to get through it was kind of a downer in that it was just a bunch of no's a bunch of don't do this don't do this don't do this So how are we to live the Christian life? Well, Paul's going to tell us in chapter 3 how to live the Christian life. He ended chapter 2 by telling them that their legalistic religious obedience didn't help them against the satisfying of the flesh, right? In other words, all their rules and all their laws will not make them holy and righteous. It will not help them overcome their sin. Look back at chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. He's speaking of, of, of the asceticism. He's speaking of the law-keeping and the, the legalism. He says, Which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. And so he's like, it has a show of wisdom. It looks good. Someone looks at you and goes, man, they must know God. They must be solid. Look, look at all the rules they have in their life. Look at the way they dress. Look at the way, I mean, look at them. They are straight-laced, top-notch. Look at the way, look at their outward appearance. And it has a certain uh, wisdom to the world, right? It has a certain wisdom. We mentioned before, that's why people commonly will leave solid churches. Maybe not solid churches. We'll just call them Protestant churches. And they'll go to Roman Catholic Church. You know why? It looks good. All the big flowing robes and the gold and the guy waving the censer back and all the smoke coming. It's such, I heard somebody say, it's such a beautiful ceremony, the Catholic Church service. 
The person who said that, by the way, was unsaved. So to the unsaved, it has a show of wisdom. Wow, that must really, that must really impress God. Because look at all, look at that. And, and let's not pick on the Catholics, okay? Let's go to the Baptists now. You have some Baptist churches where their whole, their whole walk with God is Sunday, right? So Monday through Saturday, they, they live like everybody else. But then they come to church on Sunday and they got their nice suits on and their pretty dresses, right? And they, they've got their makeup done and their hair. And people look at them and go, wow. I mean, their neighbors see them leave. They go to church every Sunday. Look how they dress. Oh, they must really be Christians, right? It has a show of wisdom. But a lot of times what you find is people who have that kind of religiosity, they have this secret life over here that they're living. You know why? Let's go on in that verse. Right? So it's got a, a show of wisdom, but go jump to the end there, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. In other words, it's not going to keep your flesh from sin. You know why? Because it's all on the outside. And the outside cannot change the inside. If it did, then Jesus would have come to earth. And the Jews would have been like, oh my goodness, our Messiah is here. And they would have crowned him. And that, right? Because if anybody had outward religion, it was the Jews. They did everything. They did everything God, and then more. They added more laws. They added more laws to the books. But Jesus didn't care, right? We all know it. I say, I repeat this verse a lot because I want you guys to all have this memorized. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I want you to have that memorized because that's true even today in so many churches. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. I don't want that to ever be the case among us. But all of their, all of their laws and all of their rituals and all of their rules could never change the heart. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he approaches the Jewish nation, they're wicked. You know why? Because the outside, though it looks good, could never change the inside. The inside has to change the outside. Change must come from the inside out. I was always very careful when, uh, when, I, was, when I was ministering in the prisons because a lot of prison ministries come in and they're not really strong on the gospel. They're not really strong on repentance. And they want to teach these guys that you need to live the right kind of life. You need to be good. You become a, a productive member of society. I made it clear to those guys, I'm not here to change your behavior. I'm here for God to change your heart. Your behavior will follow, but it'll stick, right? Now, a, a good thing, if I remember my, my I don't, it's been a couple of years, if I remember my, my percentages correctly, uh, in California prisons, um, those who are, Involved in church or have a religious experience in prison, 60% don't return to prison. That, that's, that's good, right? 40% of those people, though, they do. And the difference is those whose hearts were changed versus those whose behavior was modified. Because they get back on the outside and their modified behavior begins to fall away. Because it, it never comes from the heart. So they go back to the same friends. They go back to the same life. They go back to the same habits. Right? Because that, 
you're not going to, and you get a few who just, they never get saved, but they become more moral people, and it sticks. And you, you get a few like that, but that's not the majority of cases. And so a lot of those prison ministries are in there to reform the people. I always told them, it's not reformation you need, it's regeneration. You need a new heart. I, I, used to, I used to tell the guys, you guys know why I'm fat? You guys know why I'm fat? Because I'm not good at New Year's resolutions. Terrible. I always say I'm going to eat better, exercise more, lose weight. And I don't. Do you know why I struggle with that? Because though the spirit is in me is willing, the flesh is weak. Right? So you may leave prisons. I'm going to get new friends. And I'm going to do new things. And maybe that, maybe that, that heart and that, the voice tells you to do that, that, that moral compass you have, that's the spirit. It's willing. The problem, man, is the flesh is weak. And the flesh doesn't care what that voice says. I listen to that voice every, every Thanksgiving as I'm stuffed full. And, right? I'm going to lose weight. That's it. That's it. But I get in front of chocolate cake and that flesh is weak. That flesh is weak. Because behavior modification doesn't change things. It's got to be internalized. Right? It's got to be internalized. So I remember talking to someone one time. They are talking about how they turned their life around. And they were going to church uh, with me at the time. And they said, yeah, yeah, they, everyone holds up my sister as this great person. But, you know, my sister's in jail. I've turned my life around. I'm going to church every Sunday. Okay. She's like, what? I said, okay, okay. How does that prove your life is turned around? Well, I go to church every Sunday. I said, okay. That, that's wonderful. I said, I said, does the name Ted Bundy ring a bell? She said, yeah. I said, well, he, he grew up in church every Sunday. Going to church every Sunday doesn't mean your life has changed. It means you go to a building every Sunday and you sing songs and you listen to a guy talk and then you go home and your life is unchanged because your life hasn't changed on the inside. Going to church doesn't make you better. That's why I preached on New Year's. If your heart's not in it, don't go. Right? Don't go. I mean, don't fake it. Let's not be under the impression that coming to this building once a week makes your life better. It doesn't. Or changes you in some way. It doesn't. It's got to come from the inside. The inner man must be renewed. Or else we're just going to fall back into the same problems we had before. So now the question arises, how do we live holy lives in a religion that doesn't value external rules and compliance? That's the question, right? So what I've been presenting to you the last couple of weeks is Christianity is not a religion of rules. It's not do's and don'ts. All right. Check the list. We all can't do this. We all can do this. We all can't do this. We all can do that. We're not cookie cutters. I said that. Right? We're not identical twinsy Christians. What could be right for one person may be wrong for another. What may stumble a brother over here may be okay for a brother over here. Right? So the spirit must lead us. There must be spirit-led liberty in the Christian life. Right? So how does a religion function 
without rules. Because that's why so many religions have rules. Because they can't function, right? I don't care if it's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, if it's uh, Buddhism or Hinduism, I don't care if it's Roman Catholic, I don't care what religion it is, they have rules because they don't have regeneration. So to keep people faithful, you have to make them believe that you're the one source of salvation, you're the one true church, and they have to go through you, and to go through you, they have to go through all these other things. But the Bible doesn't teach that. So how does religion work when there's no rules to live by? I mean, what I mean is corporate rules to live by. And that's what Paul addresses here in chapter 3 of Colossians. He moves on to a more practical aspect of Christ. Gnosticism said whatever you did in the body was okay because the flesh was sinful. Paul argued against that. Some argued you had to worship objects like angels. Paul argued against that as well. Some are teaching obedience to ceremonial law, diets, new moons, Sabbaths, meaning the feast days. Paul again argued against that. Mere outward religion would never help overcome sin. That's the conclusion Paul comes to at the end of chapter 2. Mere outward religion will never help you overcome sin. So what is proper religion on the part of a Christian? Let's get into our text, okay? As I mentioned, Paul spent much of the book arguing against esoteric, secret knowledge, and mere outward forms of religion pointing to Christ as the source of all knowledge, the preeminent person in the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things. Now he's going to move on to a more practical aspect of these truths. This is what I'm calling focused Christian living. Paul begins by posing a statement of self-reflection. Look at verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. I love that he starts this with an if, right? Because chapter 2 is what? False religion. Fake outward religion. So he comes to chapter 3 and he starts with if. If you're risen with Christ. If you're born again. If you're a new creature, right? Many were seeking outward knowledge or secret knowledge and outward religion, but, they belong, they, but if they belong to Christ, then they would be pursuing Christ. That's what Paul's point is here. If you're risen with Christ, then you're dead with Christ, right? Then you're going to be pursuing Christ, not religion, not outward forms. If we're saved, we're united to Jesus Christ. This is the transaction of our salvation, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, 17, or verse 21. God made him to be sin for us. Our sin became his sin. Not, not the acting of it, right? He, wasn't, he didn't become a sinner, but our sin became his debt, his punishment, right? Our sins were put upon Christ. And also in 2 Corinthians 5.21, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So God made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His death becomes our death. Turn to Romans chapter 6 real quick. So God made Jesus, to, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. To, he who had no debt of sin became a debtor to all of his people. That we might become the righteousness of God. I, I, I need to point that out too. 
We, we can't miss that, right? So God made him, notice this language, God made Christ to be sin for us without him becoming a sinner, without him doing sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him without doing the righteousness of God. So our sins were placed upon Christ, though he didn't do them. His righteousness is placed upon us, though we didn't do it. That's the transaction of our salvation. That is what has brought about the new birth. Okay? Romans 6, verse 6. His death becomes our death. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Why did Jesus die? He didn't die so that you and I would go to heaven one day. That's not the aim of the cross. The aim of the cross is that we who are servants of sin would no longer serve sin, but serve God in righteousness. That's the point of the cross, to unite us to Jesus Christ, to give us his righteousness, that we might serve him, not sin. Going to heaven is the end result of our salvation so that we can continue to serve him. But it's not the goal. The goal of our Christian life is not to one day get to heaven and play harps on clouds. It's to become servants of Christ, not servants of sin. Christ didn't just die for our final salvation. He died to free us from the power of sin. We have to realize this. There's a lot of Christians, professing Christians, serving sin, living in sin, who either have not been freed from the power of sin or not told they were freed from the power of sin. I was thinking, I was thinking about this the other day in relationship to, uh, you guys know what Juneteenth is, right? Did I say that word? That wasn't the freeing of slaves, right? They were already freed. They didn't know they were free. They hadn't been told. You see what I'm saying? People existed at the after the Civil War. People existed as free men who didn't know they were free. They thought they were slaves. And so they did what slaves did until they found out they were free. I'm afraid we've got such a watered-down evangelicalism today that we're told the whole point of being saved is you go to heaven one day. They ask you at the door when they come here, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? That's not the point. There's a lot of, I think there's, there might be even a lot of truly saved people today in some of these churches who don't know they're free from the power of sin. And so they live for sin. They don't tap into the power of Christ because they've never been taught there is any power in Christ. You realize our salvation gives us power over sin right now. We are free from sin right now. So if I serve sin, I'm serving sin willfully, not because I'm under its power. I'm yielding myself to it. I'm not under its control. We need to let Christians know you are free from the power of sin. You don't have to do that. You don't have to live that way. I meet people all the time. I've met men in prison before. Tell me why I'm saved, but I just can't stop doing that. I said, are you living as a free man? 
or are you living as a slave? I mean, I used to use the example of the pulpit, and I tell you know they know what handcuffs are in prison, so I tell you're handcuffed to the pulpit. That's your sin. But some of us, Christ cuts that. He cuts that. That yoke. He cuts that handcuff. So we got like this. We're just dragging around with us. No, I said, stop dragging it around. Let go of it. He's freed you from it. Now walk away from it. Right? Now live over here. Stop going back and grabbing onto it as if you're still bound to it. That's what we do so often. His death was our death. That means our old Adamic nature was put to death. It has, if you're saved, no power but what you yield to it. No power. A Christian can never say the devil made me do it. He didn't. He has no authority here. None. Our old nature is dead with Christ. Verse 4, chapter 6. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I want you to understand this now. Okay, we talk about often Christ's resurrection in light of the future resurrection. And that's valid, right? We're guaranteed future resurrection because Christ rose from the dead. His empty grave is evidence, proof, solid, that mine will never stay full, right? But in the power of his resurrection, it says here, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead... Even so, meaning in like manner, we also should walk in newness of life. When? In heaven? No. Now. Now. The same power that raised Christ from the dead gives us power to walk in new life. In other words, it gives us power to let go of the stupid sin and to walk away from it. And it's that like you have no control here. You have no power here. We walk now in new life. We walk in his resurrection. Christ sitting on the throne today, not being in the grave, gives you and I power to walk in new life and not be bound to our sin. Go to Romans chapter 4, verse 6. What does this mean for us? It means God no longer counts sin against us. Verse 6, even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed, that means counts, righteousness without works. Again, he became sin, right? Not by doing sin. We became righteous, not by doing righteous. Our sin was counted to him, imputed. His righteousness is counted or imputed to us. Unto whom God imputed the righteousness, righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Count sin. Understand that. In the death of Christ, God counted my sins against Christ. He was punished as if he were me. Or you. 
And I was counted righteous as if I had never sinned a day in my life because Jesus had never sinned a day in his life. Understand that. God no longer counts sin against it. We talked about this in Friday night. If you're missing these Friday night Q&As, man, come to Friday night Q&A. We're having such good discussions there. The idea that God will no longer count our sins against us. So it came up, well, in the judgment, we stand before God. We're going, no, we're never judged for our sins. He never does. Because all of my sins, past, present, and future, were already punished in Christ. God never punishes us for our sins. He disciplines us to correct us, to get us back on the right path. But it's not punitive. It's never punitive. So when I stand before God, I'll be judged for my works, yes. For the purity of my works, for my service, for my life. And yes, if I was sinning often in my life, then yes, there'd be a lot of wood, hay, and stubble in my life. But I will never stand before God as a sinner. Because blessed is the man to whom God does not count sin. He'll never hold us accountable for sin. Because he held his son accountable for our sin. Listen, you and I could never give a better account than he gave on Calvary. Never. We could never outdo Christ in suffering for our sins. Ever. So go back to Colossians chapter 3. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. So in his death, our old nature died. In his resurrection, a new nature was made alive. That allowed us to walk in new life. In this new life, God will no longer count our sins against us. Ever. Right? And so Paul says... If you then be risen with Christ. There's a lot in that little phrase. If you then be risen with Christ. That is, if your old nature has died, if you have risen with Christ in his new nature, if God no longer counts your sins against you, if you've been saved, then what? Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. What is the Christian life? What does it look like? If it's not rules and regulations, if it's not clothes and holidays and food that we eat, what is the Christian life? It's this, seeking that which is above, namely the throne of God where Christ sits at the right hand of God. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. If you're saved, then, then seek the things of heaven. And how do we do that? Verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So if you're saved, Paul says, seek the things of heaven. And then he gives you a practical way to do that. Paul, how do we do that? By setting your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You realize you're not... Lot's wife was not seeking Zoar. Like he was. Like he got this one city that God said, okay, flee over here. I'll preserve that city. You flee there. And he was, he was walking, determined to get to Zoar to save his family from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? His wife wasn't trying to get there. She couldn't let go of Sodom and Gomorrah. She held on to it in her heart. 
she held on. She was probably from there. She's probably born and raised there. And it held such a hold on her that even though she knew safety was over here and death over here, she couldn't let go of that which was going to kill her. Understand that. She knew the pillar of salt thing. She knew the fire falling from heaven thing. And she held on to it anyways. It amazes me. We love this world so much, we're willing to perish over it. Even though we know that judgment is coming. So this is in Romans 1. We're so depraved. Because even though we know the judgment of God, we don't only do those things, but we have pleasure in them to do them as well. We know the judgment of God. We know what God has said. And yet we love this world so much. And people who have their love set here will never seek there. Never. That seems boring. Oh, why would we go there? So boring. But this, this is the fun place. The older I get and the more I read of the scriptures, the more I realize the fun place is in the presence of Christ. You realize that Paul went to heaven, came back, and he couldn't tell us much about it. But he did say this, it's far better. I, depart, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Not just a little better, far better. Paul didn't come back here and say, oh, I'm so glad I'm back. Oh, man, now I can live my life and pick up my hobbies and have a good time. I think Paul got back in his body and he was like, oh, man, that's far better. In fact, Paul's like, you know, I kind of desire to depart and to be with Christ. He wasn't like, what's funny, you know, when he says that in Philippians, he doesn't say, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, but oh, I desire to be with you guys too. He never desired to be there with them. He said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, but to remain with you is more needful in the flesh. In other words, it's more needful for you that I stay here, but I really want to go there. So how? How do you seek that which is above? You set your affections there. This is kind of a crude example. I apologize to my wife for making it. Any guys ever... <laughs> She's nervous now. No. Any of you guys can relate. If you, maybe not. I, I'm just a jerk. I don't know, but... <laughs> Have you ever had a girlfriend that you just really didn't like that much? I had a couple of those in high school. And you know what? You know what's funny is, I, I didn't really set my affection on them. I didn't. We didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't try hard to see them very much. They didn't take priority in my life. Other things were before them, and they noticed it. They broke up with me too. But with my wife, I, I realized I had affection for her. I set my affection on her. Everything else went out the window. I didn't like being, I'm a loner, kind of, by nature. I, I, I struggled getting into a relationship because I, I've been single for so long, I was going to want to do my own thing. 
And then when I met her, that all went out the window. I wanted to be with her. I think we annoy people sometimes. I, I used to have a friend in Bakersfield. I go out to coffee with him like once a week, and he wanted just like bro time. But I brought my whole family. <laughs> why? Why do you bring your family? I like being with them. That's why we do outreach together. That's why most of you see us. If we go, we don't. I don't. I don't run to the store. I take the family to the store. You know why? Because my affection is set there. Right? And so I seek to do things which make her happy. I seek to be with her. I seek her company. There's a lot of people who name the name of Christ. They don't really seek his company. Or his people's company. They don't want to hear the preaching of the word. Or sing the songs. Or read the Bible. Their prayer life is almost non-existent. You know why? They've never set their affection on Christ. Listen, the call to be a Christian is not the call to do something, like pray a prayer, join a church, be baptized. It's a call to love somebody. Do you truly love Christ? Or are you here for the benefits that Christ offers? We're called to love Christ with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you set your affection on Christ, Christian, you're going to spend your life seeking where he is. That will become your object. Your love will be where Christ is seated. So why should we do this? Look at verse 3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You're dead. You're dead. I'm dead. So the life I live now, to seal Paul's words, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So how can I love me or my interests more than him and his interests if it's his life I'm living right now? Remember, it's his resurrected life that we're walking, that newness of life. That's his resurrected life we're walking in. How can he raise us from the dead and then we're like, ah, thanks, see you later. I'll go to church once a week. But the rest of my life is mine. We got into this a while back on the Q&A. That's why I hate the doctrine of tithing. I used to hear preachers all the time growing up saying, you owe God 10%. 90% he gives to you to use how you want to. Listen, everything we have belongs to God. And if he puts it on our heart to give 10% or 20 or 30, or it doesn't matter. Right? And then they start parsing their life out. Well, 10% is for the Lord. And so I go to church and I do my religious duties. And then 90% of my time is my own. No. 100% of the breath that you breathe belongs to Christ. Right? And me too. We were dead. Our life is his life. How can we not love him? How could we not want to serve him? That's the question. How are so many people walking around this country today saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and they have no love for the one they say took their sin, gave them his righteousness, and brought them to life? How can we do that? Dead men take no pleasure. We're dead to the world, but alive to Christ. 
If we're dead to the world, we should take no pleasure in the world. If we're alive to Christ, we should love Christ. Now, when I say take no pleasure in the world, I don't want to get esoteric or legalistic here. I mean the sinful things of the world, not the non-sinful things of the world. A person can love to go surfing. But if you're not surfing Sunday, Sunday when, when corporate worship is going on, there's a problem. His greatest pleasure should be worshiping the Lord, not surfing. I love, I love, I love, I love football. I don't stay home to watch games. You know why? My greater pleasure is to be in church, is to sing to Christ, is to preach or to hear his word, is to pray, is to fellowship with the saints. That's a greater pleasure. Dead men who are dead to this world, their, their supreme pleasure should not be this world. It should be Christ. You can enjoy this world. Enjoy it. But keep it, you know, we used to have a thing when I was in school, one of the schools I went to, we had this thing where we had limited playground equipment. So we were like putting groups and each group would get something to play with, a basketball, a football, a jump rope, you know, various things. About every 15 minutes of our PE time, we'd switch toys. So everyone could play with everything. So you wanted to play basketball or you wanted to play Foursquare. And there were certain things I hated. I am not a jump rope person. No. I very clumsy with a jump rope. But you know what? I found a way, I'm the kind of person I find a way to enjoy myself, whatever I'm doing. So we create games with a jump rope that were fun. But I didn't love it. I enjoyed it while I was doing it. But when the call came for our group to grab the basketball, I had no problem dropping the jump rope and grabbing the basketball. That's how we should treat the pleasures of this world, right? It's okay to enjoy them while you're doing them. There's no problem with, there's no, there's no sinfulness in surfing or sailing or playing basketball. But when, when Christ comes up, we should be ready to drop that right away and say, this is a greater pleasure. This is a greater pleasure. That's where our love should lie, is in Christ, in Christ alone. Preaching and singing and praying should bring you pleasure. You know, when I was an unsaved person in church, I hated prayer meetings. Because they just took so long. And now I take great pleasure in prayer meetings. This morning we went right to 11 o'clock and I was like, we should have just kept praying all day. There's a difference now. Doing the things of Christ should bring you pleasure and that pleasure should be ultimate. It doesn't mean we come up with this religious, esoteric, I'm not going to touch the world. We're not, we're, not, we're not the Amish, right? I used to know a man at a church up north and uh, he was a, a very, very nice man. He was an Indian man, and very, very, very pleasured. Nice guy to talk to, great guy. But he had this one quirk. He believed that everything in the world 
was sinful. And so he took it to the extreme that, you know, his wife and daughter, they couldn't watch television. They couldn't read books unless it pertained to their school, her schoolwork. From the time they got home to the time they went to bed, they had to be reading the Bible or praying. And that was it. He's dead now. And I've tried to follow up with his family on Facebook, and I've been able to find them a few times. And what I see now is this overabundance of worldliness. Yes. You know why? Yes. Because that, that legalism, it did nothing to change their hearts. They were just doing what the, he was the head of the house. They were doing what he told them to do. When he was gone... Their hearts went to where their hearts were the whole time. That's not what Christ is seeking for us to do. He's not saying, touch not, taste not, handle not. He just, he just condemned them for that. It's okay to enjoy things in this world. But Christ should be our pleasure, our supreme treasure. We're living his life. We're on verse 3, we're going to verse 17. I'm 45 minutes in, so I'm going to do church. If you'll give me some leeway, I'm going to finish next week. Because I don't want to rush. I don't want to cut anything out. Paul says a lot in this chapter about proper Christian living. So this morning, let's stop it with this. If you're saved, if you're risen with Christ, my plea to you, is make sure your life is seeking those things which are above. Seeking the throne of God. Seeking the face of Christ. And you do this by loving Christ. If you lack love for Christ today, tell him. Yeah. Talk to him. That's right. Listen, nobody will ever come to Jesus sincerely asking for more love. And he says, nope. He'll always answer that prayer. They always answer that prayer. Remember Ephesus in, in Revelation 2? That was their problem. They left their first love. He said, repent and do the first works. What were the first works? Love for Christ. It's possible. If you feel too much of an attachment to this world, love Christ more. Seek to love him. You want to keep from sin? Love Christ. I, I was reading. Let me close this and I'll start preaching again. I was reading a, uh, a post online, and uh, it was uh, uh, it caught my eye because I saw church, but she was bikini clad. So let's scroll up a little bit to cover the picture, and let's read the article. She said she grew up in church. We've been talking about youth group, purity culture, and. Her, she married her high school sweetheart. They were youth group buddies, and they stayed pure. Oh, wait, let's, let's stop using that word pure. You know, a defiled girl who's re repented is pure in the sight of God. A defiled boy who's repented is pure in the sight of God. Let's, let's stop with that nonsense. Anyway, we stayed pure till marriage. We did, 
We read all the books. We, we wore the rings, the promise rings. We, made all, we signed all the declarations. We did all the stuff. And then my husband cheated on me and left me. And she said, my, my life now is really realizing that I was repressed by the church and by the Bible. And so now my job now, I'm a counselor who helps women find sexual freedom. You know what she lacked? Love for Christ. She had the outward. Listen, we got to stop teaching our young people. Keep from sin by putting all these safeguards in place. Keep from sin by loving Jesus. Then you'll keep from sin. That's how you do it. You love Christ. You set your affection on Christ. And when you do that, you're going to seek the place where Christ is because he's the one you love. So when it comes time to die, we don't lay there going, oh, I just can't let go of this world. We say, I can't wait to get where Christ is because it's far better. There was a, 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 a country singer a couple years ago that, that died. She claimed to be saved. I'm not here to doubt that. She may have been. But her husband posted that her last couple of weeks of life, she came to, she found peace in her cancer at the very end. But basically to sum it all up was her last eight weeks of life was miserable depression, blaming God, questioning God. You know, why? Listen, I understand she had to leave her, her husband and kids. And I understand. You see, I'm not trying to say that's easy. Right. But the problem was her affection was set with them, not with him. But even when the moment comes to die and we say we have to leave behind our spouse and our kids, it's far better. It's far better to be with Christ because we love him. We're going to seek him. And if we love him, we're not going to seek the sins for which he died that caused him sorrow. So church, love Christ. Love him supremely. And seek him. And then one day we're going to find him face to face. And we're going to say, this, this is far better. Far better. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. And our chance to be here out of the preaching of the word. And all oh, the songs we sang. Glory, glory to the Father. Glory, glory to the Son. Glory, glory to the Spirit. Glory to the three in one. Amen. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. The earth and the riches that in it are stored. The world and its dwellers belong to the Lord. Everything, you own everything. Every saint, every sinner, every house, every car, every country, every ocean. They're all yours. And we worship you, we praise you for your beauty, your holiness, your greatness, your might, your strength, your character, Lord. You are life. You are truth. You are the unchanging, eternal God. That before there was man or beast or angel, you were there. And all things were made for your pleasure. That being said, Lord, do with us as pleases you this morning. May our hearts, Lord, oh, may our hearts be bound to Christ. 
The answer to worldliness is not rules, it's love for Christ. The answer to complacency and apathy in the Christian life is not more rules and regulations, it's more love for Christ. The answer to our sin problems and our sin habits is not more safeguards, it's more love for Christ. Help us love you better and supremely. Thank you so much for the cross. In your dying, we live. In your resurrection, we have new life. In your ascension, we have great power in in the heavenly places. Help us to walk as children of freedom and life and power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me.